Well, welcome. If it's your first time at Cornerstone, we're glad to have you this morning. We're excited that you get to worship the Lord with us, whether you're coming from afar or coming from right around the corner. We're so glad to have you. What we're going to be doing this morning, we're going to be looking in the Bible. This is what we do every Sunday. We open up God's Word and we seek to learn from what God has said to us. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 14. If you don't have a Bible, some of the ushers are coming by. They'd love to put one in your hands. We're going to be using them this morning. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say that this morning, I'm not as much hoping to preach as I am to lead a Bible study. The topic we're going to be looking at this morning, we got a lot that we need to look at as we, as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. For about the last 10 weeks, we've been in this section of Scripture, showing how these three chapters of Paul's letter are meant to fit together. It starts by Paul addressing what it means to be spiritual or what spiritual things are. How God's Spirit dwelling within us through the new covenant empowers us in life. And Paul's whole point through it is that the, the Holy Spirit empowers us for one main purpose. And that's love. The ways in which the Holy Spirit empowers us, if they are not used in love, he says in the beginning of chapter 13, it's nothing. It's worthless. You gain nothing. You get nothing. You are nothing. But if we are motivated by the love of God to love one another in the ways the Spirit empowers us, then this truly is the grace of God pouring out in our lives. Last, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians 14, which in many ways is the stickiest part of this whole passage. It's where Paul goes into great length talking about two of these charismata, two of these ways the Spirit empowers his people through love. Prophecy and tongues. Two weeks ago, Todd talked with us about what prophecy looks like in the local church. And then last week, he talked about what, what tongues, this idea of tongues, this miraculous ability to speak in other languages that you do not know. And last week, he looked at it particularly in the life of the individual. There's two ways in which Paul addresses it for, here in 1 Corinthians 14. He talks about the way that it can work in the life of the individual believer between them and the Lord, and then the way that it works when it comes into the gathering, when that becomes something that's part of when God's people are gathered together. And it's actually very different. It's very different ways in which this singular ability works within the church, whether it's individually. Last week, we talked about how tongues can be a private expression of prayer and praise. In verse 4, Paul talks about it being something that can build you up as an individual, not puff you up in some arrogant way of thinking you're better than others. He's already talked about being puffed up throughout the letter. He doesn't use that word here. He talks about this as something that can build you up as an individual. But it still seems from like verse 15 that even as something that you believe that the Lord has given you in your own personal life, you still need to take care in the way that you do it, to keep your mind engaged. He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will give thanks. I will give praise with my spirit, but I will also praise with my mind. The need even in your individual life to keep your mind engaged and going, okay, is this from the Lord? Let me make sure that this is truly something that God is wanting me to do. Todd made the comment last week that, that in some ways you're not in control of the, what comes into your mind, but what comes out of your mouth you are absolutely in control of. And you need to take care with that. So this can be something that can build you up as an individual, but when gathered together with other believers, if there is no one to interpret that message in tongues, then you may not say it out loud. In verse 28, Paul says, you must keep silent and keep it between you and the Lord. 
Because in the gathering, he makes clear throughout this chapter, in the gathering, it's not about doing things that will build you up as an individual, even in a positive way. All things must be done, he says in, I think, verse 26. All things must be done so that the church may be built up. Everything must be done to build up the church, not just yourself. He says in verse 5, in that light then, that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. That there is a way in which when tongues are properly interpreted, even that can be something that builds up the church. Paul affirms that tongues are a form of charismata. They are a way that God graces us to grace one another. They are good for personal edification, and they can build up the church when they're interpreted. In verse 18, Paul even says that he speaks in tongues more than any of them. That this is something that he practiced more than they did. But tongues did not seem to be a forefront thing in Paul's ministry. As we look through the book of Acts, which tells us about most of Paul's ministry, we never see an instance where Paul himself actually verbally spoke in tongues in a gathering of believers. As a matter of fact, outside of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he never references it in any of his other letters. And even when he mentions it here in 14, in verse 18, he says, I speak in this more than any of you. But then in verse 19, he says, nevertheless, in the church, in the gathering, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the question we have to look at today is, if tongues are good, if they are something that Paul himself even used, presumably in his personal life, why does he go to such lengths to even downplay their usefulness when God's people are gathered together? I think we have to look at verses 20 to 25. That's the passage we're going to be looking at today. I would encourage you, if you've got your Bible or your, your bulletin, there's that little note page in there. Take some notes on this one. We've got a lot that we're going to cover, and we're going to seek to do it in a timely fashion. But check it out. In verses 20 through 25, Paul's going to explain to us the purpose of tongues within the gathering. Not just for the church, but even how, this is, how tongues, how God has used different languages throughout the biblical story in relation to his people. My goal, last week Todd kind of left us with a great cliffhanger where basically he said that he believes that tongues still exist, but he hopes they never come into the gathering at Cornerstone, and you'll find out next week. That was the cliffhanger. He left us all week, and I was, I've been giving him a hard time going, really, that's what you're going to give me to do? But I'm actually very excited to do it, because I do think that as we look at, at Scripture, as we look at the whole of Scripture, it becomes clear. Let's look at verse 20. Paul says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and an outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if I'll prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called into account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This passage is key to understanding what tongues means, the purpose that God has for it in the gathering. He starts out at the beginning and says, look, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in regard to evil, but in your thinking, be mature. He's saying, your thinking needs to grow up in this way. Not grow up by becoming more acquainted with evil. It's like, it seems that maybe the Corinthians had the same, like, way of misusing terms like maturity and adulthood like we do, right? 
A video game that's, rented, or that's rated M for mature. Adult entertainment. Those things aren't signs of maturity, quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, maturity means that you know what kind of things you shouldn't play around with, right? That's what Paul's saying. Be infants in regard to evil. Seek to be as inexperienced in evil as possible. But in your thinking, that's where you need to grow up. And in particular, he says, seek to be mature in regard to your thinking about tongues. Here's what I think he's saying. Can you think back to something when you were younger that was really, really super important to you? But now you look back and you go, oh, it wasn't nearly as big of a deal as I thought it was at the time. Not necessarily something that's bad or evil, but just something that, that at the time, maybe because you didn't have more important things to worry about, it was the most important thing to you. For me, I think back to my, my electric guitar. When I was in the eighth grade, I got a red sparkle finish Fender Strat and oh my gosh, that was the greatest thing in the world to me. I like read up on it. I had all these, this gear to go along with it. I played that thing incessantly. I had to be reminded to do my homework because I just want to play it all the time. And I grew up in a one-story house, and my window looked right out to the front yard. And so I had my guitar on, my, on the stand right by the window every night because I thought, if I wake up and there's a fire in the house, I'll grab it on my way out. I don't care about anything else. The whole house can burn down. Let me just get this. Now, many years later, I had to think about where it even is in my house right now. I still have it. I'm still not quite sure where it is. And honestly, I feel bad saying this. I don't remember the last time I took it out, which is kind of a bummer. Not because it's bad or wrong or I've grown up to better things, but there is a sense in going, man, if there's a fire in my house, I'm not going to grab that. I'm going to grab the four little kids sleeping in their beds across the way. That's way more important to me, right? seems in some ways that's what Paul's seeking to communicate. He goes, he's going, look, I know you guys right now in, in the youngness of your faith, this one seems like the tops, the most important, the thing you've got to have. But I'm a little bit farther along than you. And as a matter of fact, I do this more than you do. And I'm just going to tell you, it's important, but it's not that important. We need it, but it's not front and center. It's not as central in the life of the church as it seems the Corinthians were making it out to be. He explains in verse 21, and he says this, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. I think these two verses right here are the key to understanding the entire chapter. To key, the key to understanding the purpose of tongues within the gathering. The first thing that Paul does is he calls them back to the law. He quotes from Isaiah 28, and I think also by that, he's calling us back to look at how God has used this thing throughout biblical history to show us that tongues are part of a larger story. That's been a part of a rustle for me in this whole situation over the years, is it seems like on the one hand, you have one group on the, more the cessationist camp who goes, yeah, we see tongues throughout the story, throughout the story, throughout the story, but it stops right here. And I would go, okay, maybe we'll have to look at that. Then on the other hand, again, I'm caricaturizing here, it seems that sometimes the other side of the camp, the more continuationist side, can go, it doesn't matter if it's part of the story before. This is what it means now. This is what we want to use it for now. And it seems like and oftentimes these two groups are talking past each other. And I think that's exactly what Paul's seeking to remedy in these, this verse. Understand, when he hearkens back to the law, tongues is part of a larger story. 
And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look back at the law. We're going to look at the Old Testament and see how God has used languages and even the, the confusion of languages throughout the biblical story. I think it, be, it provides a great framework for us to understand what he's talking about here. So the first thing is that tongues is part of a larger story. The second thing that Paul says in verse 22 is he says that tongues are a sign. That's key. Tongues are a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. Whereas prophecy is a, if you look in your ESV, it says prophecy is a sign for believers. The reality is, in the Greek, there is no word sign. There's no second word sign there in regard to prophecy. So I would even encourage you, if you want to, put just a little line through that one in, in your Bible. It's, it's not there. It's something the translators put in. And again, sometimes translators, in trying to make it clear, they can actually muddy the waters, unfortunately. Look what he says. Tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Whereas prophecy is for believers, not unbelievers. Prophecy is not a sign. It's clear communication from God. Tongues, on the other hand, has a signal nature. It is a sign. It's symbolic. And I think you'll see this as we look through the biblical story as well. They are symbolic. They signal something that may or may not be directly related to what is actually verbalized. Does that make sense? The sign of tongues, the meaning of the sign may or may not be connected with what's actually said. And that's what we'll see throughout the flow of Scripture. Sometimes what's said in a strange language is understood by those who hear it, and sometimes it isn't. But it seems that the point is not so much to understand what is said, but why it has been said. What does the sign point to? What does the sign represent? Best way I can illustrate it is think about the check engine light in your car. You're driving along, the check engine light pops up. You just go, oh, cool, I'll check the engine. It looks good to me, and close it, and you keep going. No, you, you know there's a whole myriad of things that that sign could be referencing, right? That light comes on, and you know you have to go to a mechanic who's got the diagnostic computer thing to pull up the code and tell you it's actually this sensor, this part, this thing, right? The sign that comes up, you can look at that and go, check engine, I understand what is being said. But what is it pointing to? What is it referring to? What caused this sign to appear? I think that's a helpful way to think about when he talks about tongues being a sign for unbelievers. It seems that the sign of tongues is its unintelligibility. The unclearness of tongues is the sign. And here's, the sign. here's what I think it is. It is unclear communication that signals that God's clear communication has been rejected. Tongues is unclear communication that signals that God's clear communication has been rejected. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to look at a few different passages in the Old Testament. I'm actually going to put some of them up on the screen because as we do it, there's a clear pattern that emerges as you look throughout the text of Scripture. And again, I'm going to put the pattern up here first. This is not in an effort to force you to see things the way that I am. It's not like back in the... Um, Back in the 60s with the backward masking on the tapes where it's like, hey, if you play the record backward, it says this. And once they tell you what you're supposed to hear, then you hear it. If they didn't tell you what you're supposed to hear, you wouldn't hear it. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to, again, for efficiency and communication, say, hey, here's the pattern that I see that emerges from the text. That God has a clear message. The people refuse to listen to the message. So God causes other languages to be heard as a sign of judgment. And then the people are scattered. You see that? Go to the next one real quick. I'm going to color code them for you because this will just help you as we look at some big texts of Scripture. I'm going to highlight these ones just so you see what we're talking about. God has a clear message. The people refuse to listen to the clear message, so he causes other languages to be heard as a sign of judgment, and then the people are scattered. 
First place we have to look is Babel, Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, here's what happens. The end of the flood, God tells Noah and his family, okay, get back to work, get back to the mission. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The idea of filling the earth means fill the whole thing. Spread out upon it. Fill it up. Then you see that there's a massive amount of people again by the time you get to Genesis 11. They all have the same language, and together with that same language, they go, let's not spread out upon the earth. Let's stay together. Let's build a city. Let's bake bricks thoroughly. Let's make a tower with its height reaches of the heavens so we can show off our greatness and not be dispersed over the face of the earth. God clearly communicated. The people said, no, we want to do something different. So the Lord comes down, he sees what they're doing, and in verse 7 it says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. God spoke clearly, but people refused to listen. So he confused their languages and scattered them. This This passage needs to be foundational to all that follows. This is the origin story of languages. This shows us that the reason why we have a multitude of languages, why half the languages in the world are on that one island of Papua and Papua New Guinea, it's not because God was just bored and like had a creative whim and said, let's make a bunch of languages. I like the sound of all that. No, the the confusion of languages, the multitude of languages is in direct response to humanity's rejection of God's purpose. Do you see that? It was in direct response. It both was a sign that they had disobeyed him, and it simultaneously hampered their ability to work together to disobey him. And from there, he scattered them over the face of the earth. And you flip to the next page in Genesis 12, and God, out of that multitude of people, he grabs one guy, Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bring blessing to all people. I'm going to bless all nations through this one nation. We pick up this, the story of this nation in Exodus chapter 19 where God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to the foot of, the Mount, of Mount Sinai and he says to them, here's why I did it. I brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. You will be that one treasured nation, that nation of priests to the rest of the world who will be the conduits through which my blessing will flow to all people. But it all hinged on if they would obey. One of the biggest parts of that covenant, that agreement that God made with Israel, one of the things we see throughout the text is the recurring of these two themes of blessing and cursing. On the one hand, if the people obeyed God's word, they would experience blessing. If they disobeyed God's word, they would experience cursing. Not only that, if they obeyed him, they would be the means of blessing to all nations. If they disobeyed him, not only would they not bring blessing to the nations, but God would use those same nations to punish Israel. And nowhere do we see this pattern more clearly than in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's take a look at that one now. Deuteronomy 28, again, this is the one that lays out all the blessings and cursings. At the very beginning, he says, If you will faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Then in verse 2, all these blessings shall come upon you. And up until the end of verse 14, it it lists all the blessings. There's 14, or I think 15 verses on blessings and 53 verses explaining the cursings that would come if they disobeyed. Do you think that God's wanting them to take obedience seriously? 
So he says in verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, the clear communication of God, or be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. And he lists out curse after curse after curse. And nestled in the middle of there in verse 49 is this one. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. And the Lord will, and then in verse 64, he says, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. This is a warning at the beginning of Israel's national life, saying, I've laid out for you the blessings and cursings. If you disobey, part of that cursing is going to be almost the culmination of that cursing. After all the other ways he lists out how they would be cursed with famine and plague and disease and all these things, it says, then I'll bring a nation whose language you don't understand, and you'll be scattered among all the peoples. This is a warning at the beginning of Israel's life. But if you know your Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you know that Israel seldom heeded these warnings from Deuteronomy 28. And even when they rejected the clear communication of God, God was gracious to continue to speak to them time and time again through the prophets. God would speak to the prophets and say, remember who you are. You're my people. You exist to bring blessing to the nations. Come back. He would call them to repent. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at a couple of those passages in the prophets that relate to this as well. The first is in Jeremiah chapters 4 and 5. At the beginning of chapter 4, again, this is a long passage of Scripture. I encourage you to look at the whole thing, but I just had to pick out so I could fit it on one slide for us. Beginning of Jeremiah chapter 4, God says this. He's calling Israel to repent. He says, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. God is saying, do you understand, Israel? Your obedience has global implications. If you will return to me, not only will you be blessed, the nations will bless themselves in me. That's what you exist for. He's calling them to remember their missionary identity. But they don't. When you look at chapter 5, verse 3, it says they refuse to take correction. They made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. He spoke clearly. They rejected his clear communication. So in verse 15, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. It seems throughout the Old Testament that by the time the people heard the people speaking in other languages, it was already too late. Is either the, the conquering army had arrived to destroy them, or they'd already been taken off into exile, and that's why they were hearing the people's languages that they couldn't understand. Let's look at one more. This is Isaiah chapter 28. This is the one that Paul himself actually quotes from in, in 1 Corinthians 14 to explain the purpose of tongues. So we've got to look at this one carefully. Paul quotes from verses 11 and 12, but it's really helpful to look at the surrounding context. In this chapter, the first eight verses of this chapter, God is basically describing the foolishness of the leaders of Israel, their kings, their judges, even their priests. He talks about how they are just drunkards, stumbling around in their drunken stupor. He says their tables are filled with vomit, even as they're trying to make these judicial decisions. And in that drunken stupor, 
they actually have the audacity in verse 9 to mock the word of the Lord. These ones are written almost from the perspective of Israel's leaders on how they are receiving God's word. To whom will the Lord teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? It's like, who does God think we are? Does he think we're little babies that he just keeps going over and over and over the same thing? For it is precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, as a matter of fact, many Hebrew scholars believe that what is happening here is that idea what I made to italicize precept upon precept, line upon line. It's not a literal translation. That's why I put the Hebrew there for you underneath it. It says, for it is tzav l'tzav, tzav l'tzav, kav l'kav, kav l'kav, zersham, zersham. It's blah, 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 blah. It's the teacher from the Phoenix cartoons going, wah, 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 wah. Who does God think we are? Does he think we're babies that he's speaking at us in this babbling baby talk? Verse 11. Seems that God says, oh, really? You think I'm just babbling at you? You think it's just senseless gibberish? That's the way the New, the New English translation puts it. They say, God's word is just senseless gibberish. It's meaningless babbling. You think I'm just babbling to you now? Well, just wait. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. To whom he said clearly in the past, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. I spoke to them clearly that they would find rest in me, that they could give rest to the weary, but they would not hear. They regarded my clear communication as senseless babbling, senseless gibberish. So then, verse 13, the word of the Lord will be to them. Tzav l'tzav, tzav l'tzav, kav l'kav, zersham, zersham. So that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. This is a heavy passage. You've regarded my clear communication as like I'm just babbling to you. So I will speak to you through a people that's just going to sound like babbling to you. You won't understand what they're saying. So that you might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Do you see the pattern? You can go to that next slide, please. I'm just going to ask you to lead this one up in what we talk about next. God speaks clearly to his people. They refuse to listen. So he causes other languages, confusing languages, to be heard as a sign of judgment and they are destroyed and scattered. Take this with us, and now turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Jesus just as he had promised, and he empowers them. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says that when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to speak in other languages as the Spirit gives them utterance. This is is unique in the biblical story. We haven't seen God supernaturally empower people to speak in other languages since Babel. And at that point, it was doing it as a sign of judgment to scatter them. The only other time you see someone, see God empower someone or something to speak in a language, I guess you could say is Balaam's donkey in the book of Numbers. But other than that, here we see the Holy Spirit empowering these men to speak in other languages. And what happens is because it's a national feast, there's people from all around, God-fearing Jews from every nation that come together in Jerusalem. And they hear this sound of all these different languages being spoken. It says in verse 6, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. They were amazed and they said, aren't all these guys Galileans from Hicktown? 
but they're all speaking. They're not even learned men, and they're speaking in all these different languages. We each hear our own native language. And then he lists in verses 9 through 11 just the list of all the different nationalities and languages that were represented there. In verse 11, he says that all those people, they said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I want you to notice what happens there. Do the people understand what is being said? Yes, they do, right? We hear in our own language them declaring the wonders of God. We don't know what those wonders were, whether they were describing God's character or telling the events of Israel's histories and what God has done. But either way, they go, we know what they're saying, we understand the language, they're talking, they're declaring to us the wonders of God. But if they understand what is being said, why do they ask, what does this mean? Because they understood tongues is a sign. It's the check engine light. You can tell that it says check engine, but what is it representing? Why did this appear? What is the problem that has caused this to come to the forefront? We hear them declaring in our own language the wonders of God, but what does this mean? This sign needed interpretation. They needed explanation of why this had just happened. We understand the words that are being said, but why are we hearing this? And that's exactly what Paul do, or Peter does in this chapter. He stands up in front of all of them and he says, let me explain to you why you just heard what you heard. And he stands up and he says, first of all, this is what God promised through the prophet Joel. He calls them back to where God had promised through Joel that in the last days he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. He goes, this is that promise of the Holy Spirit. Not the speaking in tongues, but he's saying we've been empowered by the spirit and now that's what you've been looking at. You're seeing God fulfill that promise. He said that when that happened, there would be prophecy and vision and dreams. That he was poured out his spirit on all flesh in that day. But, look at verse 20. All of that would happen before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. He says all of, everything that you're seeing, everything that you're hearing, remember that this prophecy was tied to the coming of the day of the Lord. If you've been around here for a while, you know two summers ago, we spent the whole summer teaching through the minor prophets. And this theme of the day of the Lord came up again and again and again. This ultimate day in which God would judge all of his enemies finally. And he would vindicate those who had trusted in him, even when they looked like they were on the losing end of the wager the whole time. It would be both simultaneously judgment and salvation. Judgment for God's enemies, salvation for those who had trusted in God. And he's saying, understand, there is still this heavy sense of the day of the Lord's coming. That's why you're seeing this. Then he begins to explain even more in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter's saying, God spoke clearly to you through Jesus. He spoke clearly. He attested to who Jesus was to you very clearly, both through what Jesus said and through the miraculous things that Jesus did. You yourselves know how clear it was that Jesus was the Messiah that you had always been waiting for. God spoke clearly to you. You yourselves know this. Verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Not only did you not listen to the clear communication that God gave you through Jesus Christ, not only did you reject the message, you killed the messenger. You put him to death with the hands of lawless men. But he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. He's alive again. 
You killed him. He rose again. And of that we are all witnesses. Every one of us standing here will say, yep, we saw Jesus alive again. We sat with him. We touched him. We ate with him. We know he was here. He spent a month with us, more than a month, like 40 days with us. We know he's alive. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, this is his final nail. He goes, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you see the heavy weight? There's not a lot of good news in what Peter says right here. They're going, why did we see this sign of tongues? What does this mean? God spoke clearly to you through Jesus. You rejected Jesus. You killed him. He's alive again. He's at the right hand of God. He's Lord of all. Do you think he's happy with you? There is such a weight of judgment in this passage. And it seems that the people get it. Look what happens next. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They didn't go, oh, that was a good message. I really feel inspired, and I feel like I've got some great practical points to go through my day with. No, they're cut to the heart. It is that, oh no, deer in the headlights moment. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? We killed the Messiah. What do we do? Look what happens in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could make it clear to you how huge it is what Peter says right there. Every time we've seen God use confusing languages as a sign of judgment throughout the biblical story, by the time the people hear it, their destruction is a foregone conclusion. But here it breaks out at Pentecost. The people go, oh no, what do we do? We know that this is usually, we're past the point of no return. But but Peter says, no, because of what Jesus did, look what happens. Repent, believe, be baptized, every one of you. And not only will you escape the judgment that is coming, but you will be forgiven, and not just forgiven, you will receive this same Holy Spirit that we have. You will have equal standing with us. You will be invited into this thing. This is new in the biblical story. The chance to repent at the sign of tongues is new at this point in the story. This is incredible. Through Peter's message, interpreting why they, they heard tongues, the sign of tongues at Pentecost actually served to build up the church. We know it built up the church because it got 3,000 new members that day. It built up the church. But for those who refused to repent, even at Peter's clear communication, the tongues that they heard that day were a sign that destruction was coming and dispersion was coming. And we know, a couple decades later, 70 A.D., the Romans march into town, destroy everything. They leave no stone upon another, just like Jesus said would happen. They carry the people off into exile to where the majority of the Jewish people remain to this day. The diaspora is one of the defining events in, Israel, in Jewish history. That though there is a, a, a large contingent of people living in the modern state of Israel, the majority of ethnic Jews remain scattered amongst all nations. 
As we look at the rest of the book of Acts, you even see the different times where, I don't have time to look at them this morning, but the different times, like in Acts 10 and Acts 19, when tongues comes into play in those passages, you have two things going on. Number one, you have different groups being accepted into this new covenant people of God. You see Gentiles at Cornelius' house. In Acts 19, in Ephesus, you have this Gentile group of people who Apollos preached to who obeyed the baptism of John the Baptist, who was looking forward to the Messiah. But Paul comes in and he says, okay, it's not just about John's John's baptism, it's about Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. They're baptized in the name of Jesus and they receive the Holy Spirit. And each time when you see these different groups being embraced at equal standing within the body of Christ, simultaneously, though, you still see that while all these other groups, Samaritans, Gentiles, people from all nations, are being accepted into the kingdom of God, the majority of people who it was originally addressed to have rejected it. It's like what Jesus talked about in Matthew 22 with the parable of the wedding feast. When it's time for the the master of the feast is about to throw the party for his son's wedding and he goes out to gather all those who've been invited and those who've been invited refuse to come for the silliest of reasons. So then the master sends out his servants to the highways and the hedges and they grab anyone willing to come into the wedding feast. So even as other groups are being accepted into this, the fact that the majority of Jews were still rejecting it, I think it still stands as that sign of judgment. Now, I want you to understand something real quickly here. The majority of what I've just laid out for you this morning, the majority of cessationists would agree with this, those who say that the gift of tongues stopped at the apostolic age, at the end of the time of the apostles. Most see tongues as a sign of judgment. They look through the story, they look through the Old Testament story, they see how God used it, and they go, yeah, it's a sign of judgment. But it's strictly for Israel. It's only for Israel. That's why tongues have ceased. If it was a judgment sign against Israel that judgment was coming, well, in 70 AD, when everything got destroyed, if judgment has already happened, you don't need the sign that it's coming anymore. And that's part of the logic. There there is a logic to it. They are seeking to make sense of the biblical text, and that's awesome. But there's two things, two passages in Scripture that make me go, I don't think it's just for Israel. I don't think it stopped when, when Israel was destroyed and taken off into exile. Two passages, one we already looked at. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. What God does at Babel is not specifically against the Jewish nation because the Jewish nation didn't exist yet. It was the entire human race at the time to whom God gave the sign of judgment by confusing their languages and scattering them. So we see that God has used this outside of Israel on a human scale, like a human race scale in Genesis 11. The second passage that makes me go, I don't think this is just for Israel is actually 1 Corinthians 14, the passage that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. It seems that what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 14 is he takes that same pattern of tongues that we see from the Old Testament, that God speaks clearly, the people reject it, so he causes languages to be heard as a sign of judgment and then scatters them. It seems that Paul takes that same pattern and he shows us how in the New Covenant, this applies not on a national level like it did with Israel, but at the level of the local church. And the way that he spells it out, especially in the passage we're going to look at next week, he gives procedures and practical instruction for how this same sign is meant to function within a particular local church. It seems to fit with the way that the old covenant with Israel was so centered on that promised land, that city of Jerusalem, that temple in Jerusalem. It was all centered on that land. But in the new covenant, it's no longer one nation living in one land. 
It's people from every tribe and tongue and nation spreading out to every corner of the globe, gathering, gathering together in these local churches, these local bodies of Christ. And in that same way, this sign of tongues, the pattern of tongues, then is brought in to this same local church context. It's an ongoing reality, I believe, when the church is gathered. Like we talked about before, in a private sense, it is a way to be built up in your own prayer with the Lord. But when it comes into the gathering, it still seems that this biblical pattern holds true, but in the life of a local church. Yet, Paul's going to say, even in the local church, prophecy is still greater. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, this is chapter 14 again of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Seems what Paul's talking about is that without interpretation, tongues can't build up the church. And it seems that that maybe was the way that the Corinthians were practicing this. He says, if, if, if someone comes in and you guys are all just speaking in tongues and there's no, time, there's no person there with a the diagnostic computer like the mechanic to say, this is why the check engine light came on, people are just going to go, why does this keep happening? What does this mean? Y'all are crazy. You're out of your minds. It seems like what he talked about early in the chapter. It's the flute that doesn't play a distinct note so nobody knows what's going on. It's the bugle that doesn't play a clear charge so the troops don't know what to do. Or it's even what Paul talked about in chapter 13, verse 1. It's a noisy gong. It's a clanging cymbal. Those who don't know God's message, I think that's what it means by the outsider. The Greek word, therefore, an outsider that comes in. It's actually the word from which we get the, our word idiot. It's not meant in that derogatory sense that we use it. It just means an uninformed person, an uneducated person. When someone who doesn't know about all this comes in and they just hear all of you speaking in these different languages, they don't know what to do with it. Likewise, the unbeliever doesn't know what to do with it either. And I would say in that case, it seems that from the biblical pattern that we see with tongues, when it talks about tongues being a sign for the unbeliever, it doesn't mean just the average Joe who walks in off the street, comes the very first time in a church, has never heard about Jesus before, and so this is for him. No, it seems from the biblical pattern that the unbeliever refers to one who has heard God's clear message but has refused to listen. Either the one who has never come to faith in Christ or the one who would claim faith in Christ but yet demonstrates a constant refusal to believe what, or to obey what Scripture says. That's the unbeliever to whom this sign is directed. Does that make sense? Verse 24, he says, okay, but if I'll prophesy, and an unbeliever, one who has not believed the clear message, or an uneducated person enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul's point is that even in the gathering, in the gathering, prophecy is always going to be more useful, even in regard to unbelievers. He tells them, guys, be mature in your thinking. Don't overvalue tongues, but don't undervalue tongues. And definitely don't try to do away with it completely. In private, tongues can be for personal edification. But in the gathering, it is a sign to those who have not believed the clear message. But tongues cannot stand on its own. It must be interpreted if it is spoken within the gathering. It must have an interpretation. It doesn't stand on its own. Tongues and interpretation in the gathering, they must come together or you don't speak it. That's what he says. He says, otherwise you keep it between yourself and God. 
Otherwise, how are you going to know why the check engine light came on? How are you going to know what the sign represents? But in the gathering, when the Holy Spirit empowers someone to interpret what that sign of tongues represents, it becomes the charismata of the Spirit. God's grace working in us and working out of us so that we might know where we have rejected God's word, whether knowingly or unknowingly, so that we might repent. This is why Todd said last week that tongues is kind of like a seatbelt. You need it, but you hope you never have to use it for its intended purpose. Does that make sense? I agree with him that I hope the Holy Spirit never has to speak through tongues in this congregation because that means that we have rejected God's clear message. But if we do, if we reject what God has made clear to us in his word, I hope to God we do hear tongues. I hope to God that we do, that it becomes that moment like it was for the people in Jerusalem in Acts 2, where it is laid out to us through interpretation where we have disobeyed, where we have rejected God's word, so that we might repent. That's why it's so dangerous when, this, when views of tongues split the church. It leaves both groups so incredibly vulnerable. Continuationists need to remember from the biblical story that tongues has always been predominantly or a sign of judgment. We need to remember that it's a sign of judgment so that we don't end up celebrating what is meant to cut us to the heart. We need to remember it's a sign of judgment so that we don't overvalue it and overuse it and then become numb to it. Like the boy who cried wolf. We so abuse the warning system that by the time we really need the warning, it doesn't even register anymore. That's, that's the danger of, of abusing and overusing this. On the other hand, though, cessationists need to understand that while tongues was a national sign of judgment to the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, it began first at Babel with the entire human race. And according to 1 Corinthians 14, the pattern continues in the new covenant in the local church. In combating the abuses of tongues that you see going on around you, make sure that you don't equally abuse it by rejecting it. That's what Paul says in verse 39 at the end of the chapter. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. He says, eagerly desire to prophesy and don't forbid the speaking in tongues. Don't rip the seatbelts out of the car just because you haven't had to use them yet. Don't cover up the check engine light so that you can't even tell when it comes on. Don't disable this necessary warning system. Back in 1984, there was a, a flight, a Spanish airline that was flying, I believe, through the, through the mountains, and they were in dense fog. The, the airline was Avianca, and they're flying through this dense fog, and the pilots, according to their instrumentation and their knowledge, are like, everything's fine. All of a sudden, in the middle of the flight, an automatic warning comes on, and this computerized voice starts saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilots are like, what the heck? Everything's fine. We're, we're, nothing's a problem. When they recovered the wreckage of the flight after it had crashed into the side of a mountain and everyone had died, they picked out the voice recorder. And when they played back the voice recording, you know the last thing that you hear on it? You hear the voice saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And then you hear the pilot say, shut up, gringo. And he turns it off. Do you see the danger of cutting off this warning system? If you're a pilot and you hear a warning saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, it's not a time for celebration. It's a time for action. 
It's a time for course correction. And I would say in the same way, at Cornerstone, if we see a sign of tongues, if we hear a sign of tongues come into this gathering, it is not a time for celebration. It is a time for course correction. It is time to repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a lot. And this, in many ways, seems to be outside the realm of, of of our experience, regardless of what side of the aisle we sit on this issue, Lord God. And that's honestly, that's what makes this issue so tough. Out of any issue in theology, I don't know of anyone that is harder to separate the text from experience. Lord, we don't want to separate because the two are meant to work together. But Lord God, it is so easy to take our experience and try to make it so that the text makes sense with our experience instead of vice versa. Lord God, I've sought to present this, Lord, I pray in a humble way that shows that I'm seeking to learn and strive and wrestle with the text as well. Could we be wrong? Yeah, we we could, but we want to know, Lord. We want to know what your word truly says. We want to be those who allow your word to interpret our experiences for us rather than vice versa. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and pay attention to your clear communication so that we might know you and follow you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.